Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. We're taping this on a Wednesday afternoon, a week away, almost to a T. The longest stretch I've done of this very podcast without a new episode. I was I was getting antsy at the beach down there in Jacksonville, but I'm back in Knoxville, Tennessee to talk NBA because it is Wednesday and the Atlanta Hawks may have had a basketball game last night. I blacked out at some point during that game, so unfortunately I cannot go any deeper on that. No, no, no. We'll have Kyle Newbeck on uh, after this guest to talk all Sixers Hawks, but first, the step backs. Gerald Borgay. Gerald, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Chase. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I, (laughs) the Suns are just so much fun because like, it's amazing to think about different teams and like where their playoff trajectory is. And this is like why we watch the NBA in general is for these kinds of new, new school teams to pop out. And Devin Booker's coming out party is one of those cool things. Donovan Mitchell, we've seen it. Trey, now we've seen it. Luca, we've seen it when Kawhi first did it years ago. It was fun. But when you're watching the Suns team and you saw what happened um, in game one against the Denver Nuggets, um, if you had to articulate like how the Phoenix Suns were able to take game one and also just to extrapolate that out to the Lakers series for like with how you were looking at that series, especially early on, um, how are the Suns doing this and how did they win game one against the Nuggets? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a really unbelievable season for the Suns just in terms of um, exceeding expectations because I think a lot of people thought they'd be competing for a playoff spot maybe like the five seed, six seed in the West. And here they are, second best record in the NBA, and they look like a legitimate title contender. Um, and it's been a lot of young guys stepping up. It's obviously been Chris Paul's leadership. It's been the culture that Monty's established here. Um, but specifically for game one, I think the Suns did a really good job with their balanced scoring. You know, they had five starters that had double figures, um, and four guys over 20, um, you know, Devin Booker did a really good job moving the ball and the nuggets were kind of pre rotating. And so the Suns were able to get a lot of good action off of that because the nuggets were very concerned and rightfully so about tagging Deandre Ayton on all those rolls to the basket. Um, Zach Lowe wrote a really good article about their pick and roll attacks this morning and, the Suns are just really good in that way because you have to put a body on Aiton, but their guards are capable of of reading that and swinging it to the opposite corner where there's usually going to be a shooter like Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, or Cam Johnson waiting for a wide open shot. And, you know, Mikhail Bridges really made them pay. If you're the Nuggets, you have to kind of pick who you're going to force to beat you, and, and Mikhail Bridges did that in game one. So, Really balanced attack from Phoenix. They did a good job turning, I think, 12 Nuggets turnovers into 18 points off of turnovers. So um, just a really good effort all around from the Suns in game one. Interesting. So what if you had to say who was more important or who was more instrumental to the Phoenix Suns postseason success thus far, is it more CB3's leadership and the steadying presence of having been there? Or is it just Devin Booker has gone to a different level than even you as someone who's watched every Suns game has has seen before yeah I mean I think for the season that the Suns have had in general you know Devin Booker has had a season that's pretty on par with the season that he had last year in terms of efficiency his numbers are down like a little bit but that's to be expected when you're playing in the backcourt with a guy like Chris Paul um but I really do think that in the playoffs Booker has been more important so far, especially with Paul dealing with that shoulder stinger that's kind of limited his effectiveness. Um, His best game so far was in game one the other night, and it looks like Paul's health is finally starting to come around. But in that Lakers series, he really wasn't terribly effective. He had a couple of stretches like in game four and in game six in the second half where he really kind of hit some big mid-range shots and, and kept the Suns in front. Um, but Booker has been the guy, you know, in the first round, he scored 30 points in, in four of the six games, including that 47 points in the closeout effort. Um, he was great again in game one, even though he didn't put up gaudy numbers, he was really good about moving the ball and the Suns got a lot of 
you know, hockey assists and secondary assists off of just good ball movement. I think they had 30 assists on 46 field goals and all the attention that Booker gets is a huge part of that. So, so far for the postseason, Booker's been more important, but in terms of preparing these guys for this moment and, and getting them ready over the course of the regular season with a lot of these close games that the Suns were in, um, Chris Paul's leadership, you really can't ignore that either. If you were in the coach's room watching film with Monty and his staff, what would you guess they're scheming and thinking about with Jokic? How do they limit uh, Nikola Jokic? And I mean, he just won MVP and there is just limitations to how much you can limit an NBA MVP and just his unique skill set and certain things you have to live with. Like uh, as a Hawks uh, fan, I'm dealing with this right now with Joel Embiid of just like, there's only so much you can do and there's only so much you can <laughs> throw at somebody um, who is that talented and that dominant and that, uh, that large uh, for lack of a better word. Um, does that make sense? Like what, what do you think they're drawing up? What are they, what are they thinking about? What, how does it involve Aiton? What, what do you think they're looking at here? And did you see some of it in game one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in game one, the Suns switched a good amount. They sent some double teams, but largely the the brunt of that job fell on DeAndre Ayton, and he did a pretty fantastic job. Um, you know, Jokic is still going to get his. He's an incredibly talented and diverse player as far as his skill set is concerned, but they were able to hold him to 22 points on 10 of 23 shooting. So he had more shots than points in game one um, and only three assists. So the Suns are a team that, you know, with Jay Crowder and even Mikael Bridges, if they're switching onto the perimeter, they're a little bit more comfortable with that than some teams just because of Bridges' length and Crowder's strength. Obviously, that's still going to be a mismatch. And and early on, Jokic was beating Aiton down the floor a couple times and, and capitalizing on those mismatches down low. But the Suns really adjusted, um, and Aiton did a phenomenal job in the second half of just limiting him and keeping him out of the paint, making his shots tough when he did get those those post-ups or those looks down low. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see if that continues in game two because you're not going to hold down a player like Jokic for an entire series. Um, and so the Suns might have to be a little bit more creative with sending double teams and forcing guys like, you know, Austin Rivers or Funkuno Campazzo to beat you, but... For game one, at least, they were pretty content with the job that Aiton did and, and the looks that they sent his way. What do you make of Aiton? Because he is someone, when you're watching this year versus last year, he's, from my perspective, as someone who has watched as much as they can of Phoenix, what we saw, I guess, early on in his NBA career, and it's still very early, but like just the the i don't know the reticence to go after contact and to finish inside you watch all these oops and you see how much he is living in the paint and how much more comfortable it seems like he is with contact and it just seemed like he was going to be someone who didn't really want to draw fouls all that much someone who didn't really want to be a defensive anchor how much has that has changed this year and how much of that do you think it's monty doing it's cp direction like what what do you think his been the biggest reason that it seems like Aiton is going to be more of a physical presence inside than maybe we would have seen a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been an incredible change. Um, you know, over the last two years, his growth on the defensive end has been awesome to witness because coming into the draft, that was the biggest concern. He had all the physical tools to be an elite defender, but, you know, his awareness, his effort wasn't always there, his focus wasn't always there. He's really fine-tuned that over the last two years and this season especially. And I think it comes down to a number of things. I think obviously the culture that Monty has established here has been a big part of it as far as putting in the work every single day. It's really helped Aiton grow up fast in that regard. Um, Chris Paul coming here, he was talking the other day about how you know, he sees Chris Paul in the gym, 36 years old, every day working on something in the weight room, and he's picked up a lot of his habits in that regard. Um, and the Suns know that Aiton has to be locked in and has to be contributing in these ways on both ends of the floor for them to reach their ceiling. And so they have been on him all season long, constantly in his ear between Monty, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Jay Crowder. Those guys have all been, you know, telling him where he needs to be on defense, what he's doing wrong, what, what he's doing right. Um, and you got to give props to Aiton because it can be frustrating when you have that many guys on your case all the time. But he has been very uh, receptive and open 
to that constructive criticism. He's internalized it. He's incorporated it into his game. And here in the playoffs, he's just been so physical. And that's something we didn't even see during the regular season was his willingness to drive to the basket. He had that one dunk over Michael Porter Jr. in, in game one. Um, that was just a stark contrast from what we normally see from him because, like you said, he doesn't always – he kind of shies away from contact sometimes. And he has not at all. He's lived in the paint. He's feasted down low. He's been super efficient. Um, so it's been really cool to witness his growth because heading into the playoffs, he was kind of the biggest question mark in terms of the Suns' young players who had never been here before, and, and he's absolutely risen to the occasion so far. Does he strike you as a big who is going to be more comfortable in his role um, as a secondary option offensively and just being kind of a do-it-all guy defensively inside and just be one of those go to lunch or the lunch pail worker type bigs um, rather than just the traditional number one overall pick. And like, I'm going to be the vocal point of this franchise. Um, do you think he is okay with that for now because of where this team is and the success? Or do you think this is a potential Chris uh, Porzingis thing where eventually he will want to expand his role, to expand his touches, to expand his usage um, what do you, what do you, do you have a sense of that at all? Yeah, I, I think that's been the most beautiful thing about his growth is that the Suns don't need him to do a whole lot for him to maximize his role. They need him to be that anchor defensively, that guy who is going to close out stops with defensive rebounds and, and hit the offensive glass hard to provide second chance opportunities. Um, and his gravity has a massive impact on freeing up the Sun shooters because, if you let that guy roll to the rim, he's going to dunk it. He's going to score because he's super efficient around the rim. Um, but that's kind of the wonderful thing about how good he's been this season is he hasn't complained. He's said publicly multiple times, like, you know, I'm good with being the defensive anger. I don't need, you know, to be shooting threes or doing a whole lot on the offensive end to be effective as long as we're winning. Um, that's the most important thing. And I think the Suns have really ingrained it in his head that if he's doing these little things um the suns will continue to win because they have all the other right pieces they just need him to be locked in defensively to hit the offensive glass to clean up around the basket and to roll hard when he sets those screens um that's exactly what he's been doing and i think he sees how much more effective it makes the team and how much more effective it makes his game just by doing simple things i think maybe down the line he'll want a little bit more offensive responsibility maybe he'll want to shoot more threes but for the time being i think he's seeing how much doing those little things is translating to success for the suns so if you had to put together a scheme uh, against this denver then backcourt and there was a really good piece today in si.com from front of the pod michael pena on um, monty morris and his role and his growth especially in the playoffs the last couple years and just how it started for him and his relationship with his mom as a high school basketball coach um and just he wants to stay in that six-man role and he obviously closes games and it's a more important thing for him but they're they're going out with Compazzo and rivers and we just know without jamal murray they're they're thin they're thin there Mm -hmm. and the suns are not the suns have a lot of people they can throw at those guys um is there a a way that Monty and this group could do more than what they did in game one to really attack the the limitations that the Nuggets backcourt presents? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that kind of relates to your question about Jokic as far as what they can do, because in game one, they're the, the weak side. You know, the Suns have always been kind of a scrambling defense and they've been elite in that regard. Um, but when you are a scrambling defense, that does mean that you were usually trying to force someone else to beat you. And they did that in game one with Campazzo, with Rivers, with Monty Morris. Um, and the results were exactly what the Suns wanted to see. I mean, Campazzo had 14 points and six assists. He shot five of nine, but he was really quiet after the first half. And Chris Paul just went to work on him on that matchup um, on the other end of the floor in the second half. So that I mean, if the Nuggets continue to play Campazzo like 36 minutes a game, Chris Paul, especially as he's getting healthier, is going to continue to feast on that because we saw it during the regular season. It was actually a, a running joke on Twitter whenever they played the Nuggets because any time that Campazzo got matched up with him, uh, 
Paul basically ignored any screen, told him to clear out and went to work one-on-one with Compazzo and he couldn't stop him. So uh, that's an issue. Austin Rivers can't shoot two for seven for seven points. Uh, Monty Morris can't shoot one for 10 off the bench, especially if he's going to continue coming off the bench. Um, I really do think the Nuggets need to think about moving Morris into that starting lineup over Compazzo just because of that size disparity and what Chris Paul is going to do to that matchup if the series continues that way. Um, but yeah, I, I really do think the Suns were very content with what they saw out of the Nuggets guards in game one. They are going to try to force, um, the ball out of Jokic's hands, out of Michael Porter Jr.'s hands and, and make guys like that beat them. Um, so far in game one, the results were pretty, pretty obvious. So we'll see if that continues, but I, I think the Nuggets will be better in that regard. I don't think Monty Morris is going to continue to shoot one for 10, but, um, for now, the Suns are definitely more focused on Jokic and Porter, and they'll let those other guys beat them if they can. Switching gears a little bit, the Indiana Pacers uh, fired Nate Bajorkin. Uh, do we know how to pronounce his name? How do you pronounce his name? Bajorkin? Bajorkin? I don't know. Bajorkin? I think so. Okay. Um, apologies to uh, Coach Nate if we mispronounce it. <laughs> Nate Yorkin, I think. I just, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Um, either way. Um, he was let go. This seemed like this was something that was coming no matter what, um, with all the reports that feels like a lifetime ago, um, as the Pacers season was inching to a close, um, lost the locker room. There was doubt about him, whether or not he could just keep this team competitive. And he was more of a rebuilding coach, not a coach being tasked with keeping the Pacers in the top four in the East. And, um, as someone who's usually, uh, been on the side of the Pacers have too much talent to be bad. I understand this perspective because even after the Victor Oladipo trade, you just think about the rotation. You think about the guys throwing out. It kind of reminds me of what the Suns do a little bit, right? Where the Suns have their eight or nine just competent NBA players, but they do obviously have significant more star power with Booker and Paul. But like the point of we never have to throw anyone out there who is just not an NBA player. Like, we just never have to do that. When you're in the East, that's important, especially in the regular season. So I do think they underachieved in that regard. Yes, they got destroyed by injuries. But I do think with Brogdon, I think with Sabonis being as good as he is, Turner being as good as he is, with Levert now in this rotation, with uh, the possibility of them getting some lottery luck, the Holiday Brothers, McDermott being a really good rotation guy, you're just like, yeah, this team should not be bad. This team should end with the return of TJ Warren, too. Um this team should be in the five to six, seven range um, every year with this group. And I think it makes sense to go after a veteran coach like a Dan Tony or whoever. Um, so with all that being said, would did you agree uh, that the Pacers underachieved and that this was the right change? And two, who were who were some possibilities for you that uh, you would like to see get a get a look at this job? Yeah, I mean, uh, based on just the Pacers' record this year and the fact that they were not in the playoffs, I, I thought they underachieved. Um, you know, obviously they made that trade for Levert, um, and he wasn't back for a little bit, and that impacted them. But overall, that team definitely had enough talent to make the playoffs and, and be like a five or a seven seed, like you were saying. Um, so I do think it was right for them to make a change, even after only one year, because of those reports that surfaced that we read about as far as him being you know an elite level micromanager like nobody can thrive in that kind of environment um and and after that report came out it was funny because you would hear like the mic'd up segments of him on the sidelines and you could kind of like hear it (laughs) the micromanaging the like constant nitpicking and that kind of stuff so i i think in that kind of situation if the players aren't happy and the results aren't there it makes sense to make a change now rather than wait another year um as far as potential replacements Obviously, we've heard St- Terry Stotts' name mentioned, um, and I think that's – it's understandable. I think Terry Stotts is a very good coach, not a great coach. I think we've seen his limitations in Portland, but also that roster was limited as well. I think if you want to get back to the playoffs and, and be a four or five seed, Terry Stotts is a good choice. Um, you know, Mike D'Antoni is another name that's come up. He would be fun as far as – kind of bringing Indiana's offense into the 21st century a little bit because they do have some really good pieces on that team. Uh, so that would be fun to see what D'Antoni could do with that roster. 
Um, and then a couple other names that have come up, you know, Chauncey Billups, Dave Yeager, those were both names that um, surfaced, I think, last year when the Pacers had this opening that they were looking to fill. Um, or you could go Becky Hammond, who has been deserving of a head coach opportunity for a long time. Um, I don't know if she has any ties to De- Indiana directly. She might be content to just wait in San Antonio and right. you know wait for Greg Popovich to retire, become his successor there. But um, you know you'd have to think if they were interested in her and interviewed her, she would be interested in the job as well, um, and finally become that first female head coach in the NBA. So those are those are kind of the names that I've been keeping my eye on. Yeah, the Becky conversation is always going to be difficult to navigate, right? Because mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know what kind of head coach she'll be. She could be awful. She could be great. I don't know. Like, I have no insight into uh, what kind of head coach uh, Becky Hammond will be. But you'll see it sometimes where it's, like, obvious. Like, when Lloyd Pierce's name popped up in Boston. Uh, who else? Was it Dan Tony? Who else popped up as the first two names uh, for that Boston opening? I'm trying to think of who the other name was. That was, was Jason Kidd one? Jason Kidd was the other one. Yeah, that's what it was. And I saw a lot of uh, Becky Hammond over these two. Obviously... Um, there's just a lot of obviously thrown in there and it's just like head coaches in <laughs> professional sports like I have no idea like we we really have no idea how any of these like I thought Lloyd got an unfair shake in um in Atlanta to an extent but it's kind of the same kind of stuff that Nate was dealing with with losing the locker room and questions there and just kind of in an untenable situation but like I don't know like I still have no idea what kind of coach Steven Silas is going to be long term I have no we didn't know that Nick nurse was just going to be the best coach in basketball for a season. Like, I don't think anyone saw that coming of Nick nurse, <laughs> just being this tactical wizard and just this developmental wizard. And this guy who led the Raptors to a title and just, he was great, but he was an unknown. Um, when I like do my own mental list of who makes the most sense in Indiana, it's you actually picked who my guy was, which is Dave Yeager. Like mm-hmm. if your goal, I think it depends on what your goal is as a franchise. And I don't think Becky Hammond makes sense here because, or any unproven head coach. So Chauncey Billups, I also don't think makes sense here in that Indiana, you move on from Nate, not only because he lost the locker room, but because you want to bring in a notable name that you are certain will win enough with this veteran group that you are not rebuilding, you are retooling and you want to be in the playoffs again. You want to be a four and five seat again. You want to pseudo contend again. Guess what? Dave Yeager is going to keep your team afloat. Whatever you think of Dave Yeager, that man wins enough basketball games to be a playoff team. Um, I I think Dave Yeager is a really good coach. I think there's probably personality stuff that I've heard behind the scenes there um, at his previous stops. But like in terms of what their what their priorities are in Indiana, I think Yeager actually makes the most sense to me. Yeah, and and that's it's a sensible name. It's a guy that has a proven track record. And like you're saying, if you're looking for a guy with a proven track record, Jaeger, um, D'Antoni, and Terry Stotts, those are all names that jump out. Um, and it is, has been kind of interesting that Jaeger has not gotten an opportunity since his last stint. But um, yeah, I, I think he'd be a good fit in Indiana. I think they've got options. It'll be interesting to see what direction they go in because you know we we have been talking about all these different assistants who have been you know not just in indiana but all these other places you know david vanterpool ime adoka like all these different guys that have been waiting for their opportunity and should get one at some point but when it comes to an unproven assistant taking over you really have no idea what you're going to get you could get (laughs) the next nick nurse or you could get someone who's just really not good at the job so it's always it's always a roll of the dice in that regard. Yeah, we have no idea. Like, we just we just simply have no idea. We're just it's a, a guess. I would actually like to throw out Steve Clifford too. I think he deserves a look. Like I would love to see Steve Clifford with an actual ready to win now team. Like I just <laughs> yeah. feel like this guy is never going to get an uh, an opportunity to just have a roster that's capable of winning now. Um, because I think he's a good coach. He's just never really gotten the the right group um around him. Um, are you largely okay with Jokic's NBA MVP? Uh, did you think it was Embiid? Did you think it should have gone somewhere else? Or do you think Jokic was was your pick? Yeah, I, I, I'm very okay with Jokic as MVP. I thought that was the the sort of no-brainer choice. I think Embiid, if he had not missed, what was it, like 20 games or whatever it was, um, then it would have been more of a conversation. But I still probably would have leaned Jokic in that regard. 
Um, he just had an incredible season, historic. He led the NBA in like all of those advanced stats, like you know, value over replacement player, win shares, etc. Um, and he, and what he was able to do in getting Denver to the three seed in the West with Jamal Murray going out with guys in and out of the lineup all year due to injury. I thought, uh, I thought he was, he would have been my number one choice for MVP, um, regardless. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's Jokic. It's cool. Great story. I think it's kind of over, maybe not overlooked depending on who you ask, but I'd be like, that's kind of a straw man thing, but like just Jamal Murray going down and them just not missing a beat. I think uh, speaks a lot mm-hmm. to Jokic and uh, Michael Malone as well, but mostly Jokic and just keeping it going and being like, yeah, another challenge. Guess what? Doesn't matter. Going to keep it, uh, keep it rolling. We're going to get a three seed. Uh, do you like the option of Chauncey Billups in Portland? It seems like he is the unanimous guy. And the second part to that, who is the, um, who do you think makes the most sense for Brad Stevens to, to pick to run this Boston Celtics weird situation for next year. So it's a two part of there. Yeah, the Celtics are, uh, they're an interesting case. Um, as far as Portland goes, I think Chauncey Billups makes sense. I think there are some people that are not as high on him just because he's unproven and because of, you know, off the court situations, sort of like, you know, with the Jason Kidd thing, there were a lot of people that were not high on Jason Kidd for a similar reason, but um, another, I really do think the Blazers, it's interesting that David Vanderpool's name is not a bigger name here because, you know, every time that a, a coaching vacancy has been filled in the past, we've heard, you know, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum on Twitter saying like, when is Vanderpool going to get his chance? Like, when's he going to get his chance? And now that they have one and could easily get him the job with like one tweet from Damian Lillard right now. Um, it is kind of interesting that they, and it makes sense. They would want a proven option, but like Chauncey Billups isn't a proven option either. <laughs> like right. He's got, he's got one year of assistant coaching That's a experience. Full on Dame Lillard is wanting a point guard that, uh, he, <laughs> yeah. he believes in respects, right? That, that's the reason yeah. Jason Kidd's thrown out. It's the reason LeBron loves Jason Kidd. It just seems like the, the, the hall of famer point guard type that, uh, players seem to gravitate to. Yeah. And, and it's, It's interesting with that because as much as we talk about assistant coaches with no experience being a roll of the dice, like former players who were great aren't necessarily going to make great coaches either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I I think, I think Chauncey Billis would be good. I don't think he would be bad. I think we have to keep, uh, we, we got to look to see what Isaiah Thomas does at his next stop. We got to We got to really see what happens. (laughs) But But continue. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think Chauncey Billis makes sense. I I really did think Vanderpool would be a good candidate for this job. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that his name has like literally not come up at all. Um, but as far as the Celtics job goes again, like it's, it's pretty familiar names. It's Billups. It's Terry Stotts. It's, I would even throw Vanderpool in the mix. Um, and I, and I really do think Sam Cassell deserves a look as well. If I we're like talking the Sam about Cassell option there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's got a lot more assistant coaching experience than a guy like Billups does. Um, so the Celtics have options too. There are a lot of decent options on the coaching market. And I always love this time of year cause it's a carousel and it's fun trying to match up who's going to wind up where, depending on who goes first. So, um, it's, it's going to be interesting. I would probably go, um, Sam Cassell hmm. in Boston or Vanderpool. Obviously I'm, I'm, I think I'm higher on Vanderpool than a lot of other people are, but, um, it's an interesting situation because like that roster is not, you know, you've got Jason Tatum and you've got Jalen Brown. So you've got two cornerstones there and then the rest, like everybody else feels kind of expendable. I mean, Marcus smart is probably one of those guys that's closer to being protected as well. But I mean, everybody else, like they want to get rid of Kemba. And I think Kemba, I don't even know if Kemba wants to return to Boston at this point. Um, so it's an it's an interesting situation there, and and Brad if Brad Stevens is walking away like yeah I want to <laughs> I don't want to be this stressed out anymore. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement for the candidate he has to hire to replace him. <laughs> like it's not the best sales pitch. Um, so that that situation is going to be interesting to me. Can I can I give you my best guess? I'd yes, I guess. Um, I think it's be Lloyd Pierce. I think that's I I mean he was a name that came up as well in the beginning, and I feel like that's. 
I mean, that's like, like we were saying, like you said, I don't think he got a fair shake in Atlanta. And I think, I think that wouldn't be a bad option. It'd be interesting to see what he could do with a healthy roster. Cause I mean, the Hawks, like part of it was obviously there was those reports about, um, you know, Trey young and some of the younger guys not really gelling with, with Lloyd young or Lloyd Pierce, but like, he didn't have it like Nate McMillan got a healthy roster. Like he got Bogdan Bogdanovich back and then he got uh, DeAndre Hunter back. <laughs> like they started winning games. It's not a, not a coincidence. So it would be cool to see what he could do with a healthier roster and with, you know, two certified stars and Jalen Brown and Jason or Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Yeah. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what, uh, what happens there. Um, do you think, the Jazz can sustain this early success against the Clippers with a hobbled Mike Conley. Do you do you have the Jazz pulling out this series? I was listening to uh, KOC on the mismatch this morning on my run, and uh, they he picked the Jazz to win the series in I think six. Um, I'm not I'm not moving off my preseason Clippers Nets um, finals prediction until the the Clippers are actually removed from uh, the postseason <laughs> they never say die like the fact that they came back against the mavericks is still just kind of under talked about to me of just the way they did it just the most uh most difficult route possible um to move to the second round for them but um i don't know i i have no idea i think Ty Lu has got this group fighting really hard there's the marcus morris question and uh, marcus morris has never seen a shot that marcus morris hasn't liked <laughs> stuff like that is concerning but I also just think the the absence of Conley will start to to hurt. Um, they only can attack Luke Kennard so much in the fourth before uh, Ty makes some adjustments. And Ty's really good at adjustments. Um, I think Ty Lue's a really, really good NBA coach. And I think this is going to be fun to see him and Quinn Snyder go back and forth. But um, do, you, do you sigh with KOC on this and that the Jazz should be the, the favorites? Or uh, would you like to remain on Stars Went Out Island like myself with Kawhi and Kevin Durant <laughs> in the finals? See, I really do think it's kind of, uh, I, I think in game one, the coaching edge definitely went to Quinn. Um, I saw a lot of things that the Clippers just didn't adjust on. And and it was, I mean, Donovan Mitchell going off obviously doesn't help. But like a lot of the looks he were he was getting were pretty good looks. And yeah. they just didn't have an answer. And whether that's a, a Donovan Mitchell thing or a schematic thing that they need to change. I'm not quite sure because you got to make Mitchell's shots a lot harder than what he was hitting, especially in that second half when he just went off. Um, and, and again, another thing that's kind of out of Tyrone Lou's control is like, is Paul George going to show up? Like, is he going to, is he going to be playoff P or is he going to be pandemic P? And I hate, I hate that it keeps happening because especially after what Paul George said about dealing with, you know, depression and anxiety in the bubble last year during his playoff struggles and to see those same struggles kind of rear their head in game one. Um, I hate that for him because he's a really great player and it is fun to watch him when he's cooking, but he's also, I think he has the third most games in NBA playoff history now where he shot less than 25% from the field, which is just insane. And the Clippers aren't going to win the series unless they get Paul George being Paul George because the Jazz are a really good team and they're they're a really good team without Mike Conley um, as we saw in game one. I, I think Conley's absence will matter if it continues, but I, I think the Jazz are fully capable of winning game two without him again and then getting him back for game three or for game four. I'm not sure how long he's expected to be out for. But Hamstring's not good, man. Like yeah. that, That's just not something that's going to go away. Like we just... I have my doubts that he's ever going to be 100% again this postseason. I think that's that ship's probably sailed. Yeah, and I mean, if that's the case, I think the Clippers have a good chance of pulling it out. I originally said Jazz in seven, mm. you know, knowing knowing that Conley was dealing with the hamstring problems, um, and just and just basically not trusting Paul George in a, in a game seven. Honestly, <laughs> like um, well, until I Suns see fan, it. Would you prefer to get the Jazz or the Clippers? Who do you think I, you would prefer to have? Yeah, I think in the Suns' case, they would prefer the Jazz. You know, they were 3-0 and against Utah in the regular season. Um, they, you know, the Jazz's defense is geared towards taking away three-pointers and layups primarily. 
and the Suns have two mid-range gunners who can absolutely pick them apart and did during the regular season from the mid-range on those switches with Paul and Booker. So I think if you're a Suns fan, you're definitely rooting for Utah in this series because the Clippers are a worse matchup just in terms of their switchability and the small ball lineups they can roll out there. But I, I do think the Jazz have a good chance in this series with or without Conley unless... You know, because we've seen the Jazz, like they they continue to win games without Mitchell. They continue to win games without Conley during the regular season. Like they're just a stacked, very good, very smart team. Um, so I, I am interested to see what adjustments Lou makes for Game Two because they've got to do a better job clamping down on Mitchell, especially if Conley is not out there. But this is this is a really fun time of year because this year, unlike a lot of years past, there's so much parity in the NBA right now, and it's it's really hard to pick who's going to win because I would say six of the eight remaining teams could realistically win it all. Maybe not Milwaukee anymore now that they're in that O2 hole, but um, there's it's, it's really a toss up and it comes down to matchup based things in, in a lot of these series. Yeah. yeah. And I also just think that we need to um, show the receipts of who was it who was pointing out the the underdog aspect of the seven eight seeds and the little bronze and the lucas and what uh, these bottom <laughs> seeds would do the top four seeds in both co- both conferences all advanced like we don't talk about that anymore we just moved on like that was a whole thing <laughs> for three weeks where i saw that a lot where i was like i just this is kind of odd i don't know why like it rarely happens like this we talk it in it's a lot more interesting than it than it actually ends up being and then there you have it. All four top seeds in the West, all four top seeds in the East, advanced. We don't talk about that anymore. We just moved on. <laughs> like it, 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 It's one of the dumber things that people got wrapped up into. And this is also like why I wrote off the Lakers. I was like, oh, this is it. Like, do you know how hard? Like, it just doesn't happen like that. The 1999 Knicks going eight to the the NBA Finals is just not a, not a common <laughs> thing. And to expect multiple bottom seeds to advance was just, was just silly to me. It's like if you get one, you're like, huh. The NBA is not about upsets, and there's a reason that these teams are top four seeds, and uh, I, I just had to get that off my chest, Gerald. I, I had to get that off my chest because it bothered <laughs> me, and it was kind of that whole conversation. We just moved past it because uh, some people probably don't want to go back and check the tapes on what people were saying. Oh, yeah, and, and it's totally understandable because like, you look at the teams that were in the for the seven and the eight seeds. It's the Lakers. It's the Warriors. It's the teams that the national – NBA coverage wants to be good and wants to make a story out of. And I I think there was a legitimate cause for alarm in that Suns Lakers matchup just because, you know, it it seemed like the Lakers were getting healthy at the right time. Um, And they're the defending champs. So I get it. The Suns had never been there before, but the Suns looked up for the task and the Lakers did not look fully healthy, didn't look like themselves and just weren't the better team. So it was, uh, it was kind of funny to see all those, you know, those storylines like, oh, the Wizards are hot right now. And like, oh, the Celtics have Tatum and <laughs> the Lakers are getting like, no, they all they all lost <laughs> the first round in pretty except for the Lakers in pretty decisive fashion. So that was kind of a that was kind of I think the Hawks are the only underdog seed that won in the first round that won their series. Yeah, they, they were the, really the underdog. They, the the yeah. Knicks were the underdog. I, I threw that out there because they're they were the they were the underdog. The, the Julius Randle <laughs> Knicks were were the underdog they were they were manhandled um we don't have to they were the the overwhelmed and overrated um for uh the non-bias aspect of this show i, I would never <laughs> never go down that road but um yeah no, the, the better team then the the true number four seed actually moved on and we call those the atlanta hawks uh gerald what can we check out from you across the internet this week as we wrap up here today um, yeah, so continued playoff coverage for the Suns over on fansided.com slash NBA. Um, you can check out all my all my work on Twitter as well and uh, should have new podcasts. I'm also the, the host of the Valley of the Suns podcast, so a lot of Suns-centric stuff. But we also talk about, uh, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff for an entertainment segment just to mix it up a little bit. So that's always fun. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much the, the extent of all my work these days. Well, there you go. Keep up the great work, Gerald, and uh, we will have to uh, check back in and talk NBA again really soon. Absolutely, Chase. Thanks for having me on.
right, the Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Notes Podcast rolls on where Kyle Newbeck of the Philly Voice, my favorite objective basketball journalist across the internet, is here. <laughs> Kyle, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm hanging in there, man. It's been a been a while since you you and I have talked, so I hope you're you're hanging in there despite all the chaos of the last year or so. I'm gonna need you to be more specific. What uh what what are you referencing? Uh, you know, just general life changes that we've all gone through. I've maybe heard a bit about that, a bit about that. But no, it's been like four years since we last spoke, Kyle. Uh, really? Um, I didn't yes. realize that, that it's been that long. I don't realize certain things about this until like I'm 30. I don't know how old you are, but. I'm 31. So okay. we're right in the same, uh, same window. There you go. And I, I don't know if you think about this sometimes, but like you and I, I think, grew up on NBA Twitter in a different way in like the ESPN True Hoop Network and just yeah, my yeah. Pradas, the Zillers, the um, Henry Abbott's, all that kind of stuff. We grew up reading and like that's what I was reading in college and those are all gone. And I've written about that a lot of just the death of basketball blogs just ruins my morning every day. Like just every day I look over and I'm like, where's Buck- Buckskitball? Oh, it's gone. Fuck. Um, but I... I think about this where it's like, these people are older now. Like, they're like 40, 50. Like, they just moved on. Like, Paul <laughs> Flannerly's like Sunday NBA shoot-around column's been gone forever. And I used to read that every Sunday, and I miss it all the time. And it's just, it's just gone. Like, all these people that I knew when I was younger and growing up into this, they're, they're so much older now. And their kids are like 14, 15. Like, Steve McPherson, the old friend of A Wolf Among Wolves, he has like a, I guess, like a 34-year-old daughter now, uh, by my account. But it's just... It's incredible, right? It's crazy. And, you know, I, part of that also is all the, you know, I was at a point, I guess the last you and I talked and four years ago, that would have been like uh, my following back then was small enough where I knew, I don't want to say all the people that are replying to me, but th- like the names are recognizable. Like these are people that I'm having conversations with on if not a daily basis, at least like a, a semi daily basis where, you know, we're we're talking about the same things. We're having arguments about mostly the Sixers, but all kinds of different stuff. And now over the last four years, because I've been on the beat for so long and, you know, over time, you just accumulate more followers when I have you. I just have these people in my mentions screaming at me who I've never heard of before, who are just they just see me as like. I'm a reporter, so they I'm the big bad media rather than, you know, back in the day, I was really invested on a personal level in like the 76ers and Philadelphia sports, broadly speaking. And so they saw me as like one of them where we're like, well, we're in this together. And now it's, you know, if I say the wrong thing, I'm in trouble. If I say the right thing, it's like, oh, you're one of the good ones. And it's like, you know, I, I'm the same guy regardless. And I promise I'm just a human being at the end of the day. So uh, even in my own like personal bubble, my experience has changed a lot, but certainly like the, the, the changes you've mentioned to blogs and just people either retiring, taking buyouts, pursuing new careers. It's like a, it's a totally new landscape and it is filled with zoomers. <laughs> filled with zoomers. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I've always seen you as the enemy, Kyle. Does that, does that help? I don't think that's very nice. I come <laughs> on your podcast and you say that I've always been the enemy in your eyes. That's not that's not the best thing to hear. No, no, um, no. We're gonna. You're the enemy at at the moment, even though you do not have feelings anymore. Ever since you've gone full Dennis Reynolds on the Philadelphia beat, which look, I respect. I respect Kyle. Um, but your uh, ex Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, are currently tied one <laughs> one uh, with my emotionally invested Atlanta Hawks. Um, if you were to explain, and you've I'm sure written about this today, um, how did the Sixers flip the script in Game Two against the Atlanta Hawks to not go down o two outside of the the nonsense that was the Shake Milton experience for me. Oh man, that was, you know, I actually like that. I know for you, that was really frustrating for me as someone who is now more detached from like the, the team, like rooting for a team or players or what have you. 
that's what I show up to the arena for. It's like it's just some random guy off the bench going ballistic when it looks like the opposite is going to happen. You know, Atlanta has a 32 to nothing bench point advantage in the first half. And then Shake Milton catches the Holy Ghost and uh, effectively wins the game for the Sixers. So, like, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, in, in terms of why the series, or at least game two, flipped, number one started with how they approached the Trey Young assignment. Like, they, they put Ben Simmons on him. And as Ben Simmons has done all year, even if he's not the guy individually stopping Trey Young on a lot of these possessions, the size and the athleticism that a guy Trey's size has to deal with that Simmons is bringing to the table, that's just that's a huge hurdle to clear. Mm-hmm. And, and beyond that, once Trey gets past the first level, like they're setting a screen on Ben or when they're setting a screen on Matisse Thibel, the Sixers were more active with they were switching more often. So instead of letting instead of dropping Joel Embiid to the rim and just saying to Trey Young, hey, we're just going to let you walk into floater after floater after runner after runner and letting him, you know, he got ahead of steam going in game one. And then he just starts extending his range because a scorer like Trey, once he gets in a groove, he's basically impossible to stop because he can hit pull up threes from 35 feet out. He's a great playmaker, all that stuff. So instead of just conceding space to Trey, they switched, they showed high in the pick and roll and look, they just, they tried to make his life miserable and they tried to get the ball out of his hands. I I think they still had some problems, you know, guarding the shooters. There were probably far too many open looks from three for the rest of the guys. But because that was, I think to some degree that was a stylistic choice. It's like, okay, we'll have to live with that, but we're going to stop Trey from getting the looks maybe he wants to get. And I think that made, that was the biggest difference by far to me. And then obviously Joel Embiid comes out and scores 40 points with a small tear in his meniscus. And I just am continually amazed by what that guy has done this year. Do you think it's hobbling him at all? Does he look any different since that uh, injury report came out? Uh, I think there were some moments in game one, particularly at the end of the game when uh, Philly messed Atlanta up with some full court pressure and Joel was having to run around a lot more rather Mm -hmm. than playing in like a half court style. And there were a few moments there where I thought he looked maybe a little gimpy. But, you know, other than that, I I think if you looked at the average possession – there's no way you're going to be able to tell that he's actually hurt or has some kind of meniscus tear. Like he's flying around on defense last night. He was showing all the way out to the three point line on these pick and rolls and then somehow making it back to, I know Clint Capella had, he had one nasty dunk that Joel actually followed up with his own shortly afterward, but Mm -hmm. he broke up some lob plays and is covering three point line to the rim. So if he was like truly feeling this, I don't think he'd be moving around like that. But this is one of those injuries where it it can get worse, certainly. And I don't know how it's going to play out over the course of the series. Like maybe he wakes up the day of game four and he's just more sore than he's been. And it shows up more. It's a a thing that they're treating day to day. And uh, I guess we'll see what happens from here. Yeah. um, Did I respect scott foster's uh decision not to toss joel Embiid after a unprovoked shove against nil gallinari no no but um <laughs> it happens from time to time um it's just difficult because like when i'm taking notes during these games and i'm looking at what Embiid is doing like the hawks i don't think defended Embiid poorly like if you go back and watch a lot of his spots i just i don't really know what you're supposed to do when he draws these fouls like there was so much attention on the way that trey young draws fouls like guys on his hip and he hasn't done that in the series and he hasn't really done it as much this postseason as a whole um but Embiid, i just i don't know what you're supposed to do like if you're clint capella like what is what is the what is the way to go about it because he can beat you so many different ways he can beat you off the dribble he can beat you inside he can beat you all over the place like he just he decides when he wants to get fouled almost right 
Yeah, and he has. It's very similar to how Trey approaches the game as a guard, like a very different version of it, obviously. But if you reach or if you lean too far on Trey Young, he's going to. I don't want to. I'll say exaggerate the contact, but that makes it sound like I'm saying he shouldn't do it. Like he is gaming the game and making sure the officials see. Every reach in, every guy who steps one step too far. Joel Embiid is the big man version of that. He plays like a, a, a center who takes his cues from a guy like James Harden, where if you reach, he's going to rip through and he's going to go to the line. If you, you know, some guy tries to double him and it's a guy who's trying to swipe for the ball, he knows when that's coming and is going to go up with the ball and try to force the officials to make a call. And beyond that, like, you know, I thought last night, one of the things that was just, what do you do if you're Atlanta? There were times when they're sending doubles and he was just like, screw it. I'm going to shoot over both of you. Like, I don't care. I'll take a step back jumper. He has said many times this year or several times, I should say, that part of his off-season workouts with his trainer was watching Dirk Nowitzki film and trying to lean on like the the one-legged fadeaways and the sort of stuff that really made Dirk an iconic player. And so when you're when you you're as big as Joel Embiid is and you can post somebody like Capella up, then you can go to the baseline or from the nail and you can hit one-legged step-back jumpers and you are a better decision maker out of the post partially because there's more shooting around you. Like, I I don't know how anybody is supposed to guard him, let alone Clint Capella, who, you know, I think is a very good player, but he's just given up a lot of size to Joel Embiid. I like it's it's a borderline impossible task. And so it, it has to be a team thing where they're just mixing up where the doubles are coming from, how you send pressure, when you send pressure. It's a, it's a a constant problem to solve because it changes from possession to possession. So is there a way that Trey can flip what Ben and Thibel did him in game two? Is there a way that he can schematically find that space and kind of split what they're doing to him in game three? I think some of it is just a matter of, you know, maybe who the, the Hawks decide to send as a screener. Uh, at Simmons or Thibel or whoever mm-hmm. it is. I, I think one thing we saw really that was like the predominant story on the, the negative side for the Sixers in game two, but was certainly prevalent in game one, is that when they were able to hunt Seth Curry on on that end, they had great results. Like he, It's been one of the big concerns on my end and a lot of the, the, the beat writers end this year is like, okay, Seth Curry is great for their offense. You can't leave him alone at basically any time because he's one of the best shooters in the league. But if teams force switches, a guy like Trey Young is going to eat him alive. Like He's just going to go right by him if he can ISO on him. And so you saw them, you saw Curry involved in a decent amount of screening action in game two. I would imagine that they're going to try wherever the Sixers end up trying to hide Curry, because that's basically what they have to do on defense all the time. I think Atlanta should probably just try to get him involved in more ball screens. I think that's actually something, you know, Philly tried to do more of that last night with Danny Green, who Trey Young has been guarding. They, they, they wanted to make Trey a more active defender just knowing that that's that takes away from some of the energy you have to expend on offense. So that is where I would start. Uh, beyond that, I think some of it is just, you know, Trey's probably going to make more shots. He had some open threes last night, even with uh, Ben Simmons and Thibault guarding him that, you know, maybe in a, a different game he gets going and, and makes this a little bit closer. But, yeah, I'm interested to see what Nate McMillan and, the, and these guys cook up. Doc's? rotation management thus far how would you how would you rank it is it has it been good has it been what it needs to be has the issues with the bench be because of his choices there what have you made of his his subbing thus far so game one i thought he was just straight up bad for you know most of the game both in terms of the the rotation and their initial game plan for trey young Uh, I think game two, he certainly did a better job, but I I think you see some of the problems with or some of the the issues posed by their roster construction. So Tobias Harris is killing Atlanta 
last night, right? In the first quarter, he's just absolutely going bonkers. And in order to make sure that they stagger and have one of the three guy, the three primary guys with the second unit, he has to take Harris out while he's in the middle of that hot stretch. And so that that ultimately like putting Harris with that second unit has actually been pretty successful this season. But you see how it can go wrong for Philadelphia. Somebody might say, okay, well, sub Ben Simmons out there instead and bring somebody else on and Ben runs with the second unit. The problem there is that Ben and Dwight Howard are an atrocious fit together. Then you have Matisse Thibel into the mix. Then you have three guys who nobody respects to shoot from three on the floor at the same time, which in a playoff setting, even if you're against a terrible defense and the Hawks have not been that since uh, McMillan took over, that's a recipe for disaster. And the the numbers for those lineups all year have been bad. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that always comes up for fans with coaches and like, what's he doing with his rotations? But there, there are just a lot of downstream effects anytime you make even a single change. So I, I think the important thing is that Doc has shown that he's flexible in the playoffs so far, more flexible than I think he was at his last stop in L.A., you know, he put Maxi in in the first round because Shake Milton was struggling. Maxi has struggled through the first two games. So Milton is back and he has his great second half last night. He changes the staggering after not staggering in game one. I, I think he's done a, a pretty good job so far. I, he certainly gets a few demerits for <laughs> for game one. But overall, I think he's been good. Yeah, I uh, I'm excited to see where where that goes. Um because on the Hawks side, I thought Nate did some some bad stuff. Like, I think at the end of the third, his decision's there. And then to start the fourth without Bogey and Trey when it, the Sixers, what was it, 11-0 run to start the fourth? Right. Um, when things got out of hand, it just got out of hand quickly. And I just, I'm concerned that you don't, you, they, they should not expect that kind of performance from Bogey, or from, not even really Bogey, but from Herter and Gal at the same time again in the series. I think those two just went berserk and it's not going to happen um for the rest of the series i think it may get one more out of them but i don't think it's sustainable and i think when you have that kind of production from those kind of role guys especially with deandre hunter out and john collins just being a negative like john collins has lost so much money this postseason and i feel vindicated (laughs) as a uh just the Hawks fans um, who just have this weird um, obsession with John Collins and the 20 and 10, the double doubles, just like he he's not good at anything. Like John Collins is a fine rotation guy, but he doesn't have like one particular skill that makes him incredibly valuable as a Swiss Army knife piece in a playoff series. Like he doesn't do anything. Seth Curry does something for the Sixers. Joel Embiid is obviously a superstar, but like you have guys, uh, Danny Green, who is my favorite Sixer because every shot that Danny Green gets up makes me happy it makes me smile <laughs> it's incredible like danny green did you see after his first three where he ran over it went out of bounds like it hit the side of the rim it went out he ran over and like <laughs> t- to touch the ball before the ref got it did you see that i i did not see that but uh, you know he i wrote some, that down where i'm like interesting things during that's games. a that's a pickup thing when you really don't have it it's like the guy who's like airballing multiple shots he's just like oh it's the ball like it's just one it, there's something else that's not him it's the the ball i need to maybe if i rub it a little bit more to get my fingers acclimated to the grip um that's what's going on there but uh keep getting those shots up danny green i just i thought nate did a poor job of managing the rotation in the in the second half and just really not uh doing enough for that group and solomon hill minutes were a nightmare and i'm a big solomon hill guy but uh oh yeah they got run off the floor he just can't be out there and the deandre hunter injury is just it's bad right now i would say for the hawks i think mm -hmm. so here's what i would say like as you're talking this out uh, i'm just thinking like so i think the problem like what mcmillan did wrong in game two is sort of a a variation of what doc got wrong in the first half in game one where you know atlanta gets up early they have a double digit lead and 
Philadelphia was in a position where they needed to stop the bleeding. And that was obvious to everybody watching the game. Instead, Doc decides to go with the all bench lineup and Atlanta pushes the lead to, I believe it got into the twenties before Mm -hmm. they even had a starter back in. And you know, that, that largely is why they were able to build a big enough cushion where they didn't lose in the end. And McMillan in game two, you know, shake Milton hits a couple threes at the end of that quarter, but at the end of the third quarter, I should say, but that game is still close at that point, right? Like they're, they're within reasonable striking distance. And McMillan could have easily gone into the, the, the between quarter timeout and said, look, this is a winnable game for us still. And if we take two games on the road to open the series, that is that gives them so much more room for error. It puts all the pressure on the Sixers who have not been past the second round in a, a long, long time. Doc Rivers is going to start having to ask all kinds or answer all kinds of questions about, you know, is he actually the guy to the get to the promised land, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, all the national debate shows are going to be on the number one seed going down 0-2 at home. But McMillan decided, you know, I'm going to stay with what got us here, the the group that uh, was good in the first half. He ends up getting burned for it. So, yeah. you know, I it, it's just one of those things. I'm sure when people saw like some bench guys on the floor for the Sixers in uh, the second half, everyone was thinking, oh, man, here comes Atlanta's run, and it ends up going the opposite way. So that's sports, man. The the margins are, are very thin at the highest levels. I tweeted this out, but everybody gets one against the Hawks in a playoff series. The, the Knicks got one with Alec Burks, and uh, the Sixers got one with Shake Milton. That, that was it. No more <laughs> Shake Milton games. Um, in my opinion, um, do you think, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. Do you think the Hawks should go small the rest of the series? When you think about just where the series is going to go back to Atlanta, their options, I think a lot of it depends on the health of DeAndre Hunter, but his knee was swelling, uh, as of late. So I don't really know what's going to happen there. I think it's just going to be an up and down situation until he gets like a full off season of rest. Um, unfortunately, but the knee stuff's just not going anywhere with them. Um, that changes things. But I just I don't understand the point of going big with Collins and Capella with Embiid in this group. Like, there's just no point. Like, Embiid's just going to do whatever he wants inside. They're going to beat you up inside. The Sixers are going to be bigger. Just go small. Just do as much. Live and die by the Capella, Gallo, Herder, um, Bogey, Trey, lineup like that that is what i don't understand it's like that is what you just give them 40 minutes a piece and just if you go down to the best team in the east um that way i think that makes sense it's fine but collins of 26 minutes just it it can't keep happening um lou getting too much time just can't keep happening we can't just see trey not hitting the 40 point or 40 minute threshold anymore um i also just think that trey's just got to be he's got to flop more like that was something I'd written down. I'm like, he's got to <laughs> fall. Like he is going to be guarded by dudes a lot bigger than him. Ben Simmons is going to make any kind of checking more. <laughs> it looks, it's just going to look worse because Trey is just going to be a lot smaller than the guys guarding him. He needs to flop. I don't know why he was not flopping more in game two, but hopefully back in Atlanta, he is going to draw those fouls and he is going to flail and, I don't think Philadelphia fans are going to like it, but I do think that's going to be an adjustment is Trey being told, Hey man, you, you got to fall down. Like, I don't know what we're doing here when you're inside. Cause there were moments where he was inside and he threw some really good passes, but I'm like, dude, just go down, <laughs> just go down. Like what? They're going to call it. It looks bad. You're, you're a little man. Like they're going to call it. It's going to be fine. And Scott Foster and Tony brothers, just, just go down. And he, he didn't do it, but um, I don't know. I, I think, uh, that's something I would do. If Do you have an adjustment for the Sixers that they should make going back to Atlanta? An adjustment for the Sixers? Well, I guess it, it's really going to depend. I think the next chess move has to come from Atlanta because broadly yeah. speaking, the last three halves, so three quarters of the halves they've played so far, have been in Philadelphia's favor. Hmm. So I, I think they have to – they ultimately are going to have to – they can – as the number one seed and as the team that has been, you know, sort of front running for the last three halves, I think they'll probably just stand pat and say, okay, let's see what you have out now. Something I, I do think the Curry minutes or the Curry's defense are where I would look first if I'm McMillan. 
And so on Philadelphia's end, then you have to say, okay, if that goes poorly and, and if they try to use Curry as like a, the, the moving target, basically, uh, who's taking those minutes? Do you want Thibel to play more minutes? To, is the downgrade in shooting really going to junk things up? I think this might be where a guy like George Hill probably has to play more minutes because he's just straight up a, a much better defender than Curry, but doesn't take as much off the table as a shooter as somebody like Thibel will. Honestly, I, I think they need to just stay true to themselves. Like one of the things they did in the the Washington series, and you know they won that pretty comfortably in five games, but it ended up being a series that was more on Washington's terms. Like it was mm-hmm. a, a run and gun, up tempo, score a lot of points type series. I, I think what was encouraging about Game Two for Philly is they imposed their will on defense and they made life really tough for Trey young. And that's their calling card. They're not going to win a title and maybe they will, maybe I'll end up sounding dumb, but they're not going to win a title because they just outscored teams. They're going to win a title because Joel Embiid is an insane defensive anchor at the rim. And because Ben Simmons is maybe the most versatile defensive player in the league. And that is going to be ultimately if they're able to win, that will be why. So uh, I think they just need to be the best version of, of themselves there. They have to you know, play disciplined defense. I, I mostly mean the non-Ben and Joel guys because those guys are, are going to do what they do. I think Danny Green, who you already brought up, has played a couple of his worst games all season to open the series. So you hope to see a bounce back from him if you're Philadelphia. And ultimately, you go down there thinking, we got to steal at least one. And, you know, if, if they can do that, then they just need to win a couple on their home floor and, and that'll be the series. I'm excited because I really have no idea which way this will go. I think there's opportunities for both teams to adjust and to uh, to advance. Um, unfortunately, I think I'm not sure where you're at with this, but either way, the, the buzzsaw that is the Brooklyn Nets waiting for you i don't think oh uh, yeah like i don't I, think it really matters. before the playoffs i i i've been telling people locally every time i'm asked about it it's like look i would love to say i <laughs> I, I see the sixers going to the finals because i personally as a selfish person i would love to cover a finals team mm. but i just i look james harden goes down in the opening minute against milwaukee and they still have just been comfortably the better team with katie and Kyrie. So, yeah. you know, I guess when you can get Blake Griffin for nothing and he's all of a sudden great again as a role player, then, you know, things like that help, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Kyle, what can uh, we check out from you across the Internet this week? Uh, so I would just say keep an eye out for more articles of mine at the Philly Voice. That's pretty much all I'm focused on right now. No, uh, you know, I do some local radio and tv stuff i'll be on philadelphia tv later today but uh, that's hard for some of the listeners that will be hearing this to to access so mostly just stick to the writing that's what i as long as you're reading me i stay employed and that's that's the the ultimate goal for me well go read kyle kyle's one of the best nba writers uh that has no no feelings towards his team a lot of people still mostly invested not kyle newbeck not at all (laughs) kyle thank you so much for the time as we wrap up i will give you hawks in six is my final prediction when we come back oh man what is your prediction as we wrap up the music's hitting what is it what is it kyle sixers and seven there you heard it sixers and seven hawks and six kyle newbeck always a pleasure let's not make it four years before we talk again Yeah, let's talk soon, buddy. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.